0: Hello and welcome to the Intentional Clinician podcast. I'm your host, Paul Kraus, licensed professional counselor. In today's podcast, we are returning to the subject of Ayurveda and the practices of Ayurvedic medicine and principles. Returning to the podcast is Charles Goodman, who is an Ayurvedic practitioner. Charles Goodman was originally interviewed on episode 60 of the Intentional Clinician podcast, So if you are looking for a definition of Ayurveda and how it works and what its principles are, I would start there. In today's episode, we talk a little bit more about practical applications of Ayurvedic techniques on different things relating to mental health, such as anxiety, depression, anger, and more. A little bit about Charles before we get started. Charles Goodman has devoted his life to the study and practice of Ayurveda, the world's oldest and most complete system of healthcare. From 1987 until 1992, he studied and worked at the Ayurveda Institute in Albuquerque, New Mexico, the preeminent center for Ayurveda in the United States. There he completed a range of academic programs and developed skills in a variety of Ayurvedic treatments. A two-year internship under professor and Ayurvedic physician Dr. Vasant Ladd, led to Mr. Goodman's appointment as the Chief Administrative Officer and Clinical Associate at the Institute. In this capacity, Mr. Goodman had overall responsibility for managing the Institute, teaching specialized courses, and attending Dr. Ladd's clients as needed. Mr. Goodman also founded and was the editor of Ayurveda Today, the first journal in the United States devoted exclusively to Ayurvedic medicine. There is so much more to say about Mr. Goodman as he spent time in England studying, he spent time in Canada, and he spent a majority of his career working with his partner in Brazil. All that and more you will learn if you listen to episode 60 and part of this episode. I'm sure you're going to enjoy it. If you're a new listener please hit the subscribe button so we can stay in touch. And if you're a long time listener, please share the show with somebody you know. I would surely appreciate it. And right before we get to the interview today, I wanted to let everyone know that I have launched a course for the parents of young adults. It involves many facets of how to navigate the mental health system as well as tips on communication and boundaries and how to promote pro-social activities and even covers uh, issues if your young adult has an addiction. If you are interested in this course right now, you can check out the link in the show notes. And at the end of this podcast, I'll be playing a short audio clip so you can hear a little bit more about what this course is about. All right, let's get to the interview. Welcome back, Charles Goodman, to the Intentional Clinician Podcast, back by popular demand. Uh, After your first podcast uh, interview came out on Ayurvedic practices, people had been asking for more. So here we are, and I know that we've talked about possible Ayurvedic solutions or practices for psychological conditions. So welcome back.
1: Thank you, Paul. Nice to be back with you again.
0: Wonderful. So we had a very long discussion about Ayurveda philosophy last time, and we didn't really get to get into the specifics. Um, You gave a large overview of the balancing mechanisms and how it is a large philosophy that could be sort of brought into other philosophies. And we learned about Pitta and Kapha and Vata, And if people haven't heard that podcast, I would encourage them to listen to that first. So I'll put a link to that in this show. But one thing we didn't really get into too much was how Ayurvedic practices could possibly help with psychological conditions such as anxiety, anger, and depression, memory and focus, some of the other things we might touch on today. So maybe you could pick, but um, I would love to know if we could start with one of the top three that we hear a lot as clinicians, which is anxiety, anger, and depression. Any one of those you want to touch on? Sure.
1: Let's take a quick look at all three.
0: Okay, let's do it.
1: I think pretty much all of your listeners will be aware that mind and body are connected. If you make a change in the body, the mind will reflect that change and vice versa. Changes in the mind cause changes in the body. I think of... of of the entire human being as being something like the four legs of a chair, um, representing the physical, mental, emotional, and even spiritual aspects of life. Now, if you want to bring a change to an individual, you can do so by approaching any one of those four, just as when you wanna move a chair, for example, with four legs, Pulling on any one of the four legs will bring the whole chair along. But the easiest leg to pull on the chair is the one nearest to you. And I think that the nearest of the four aspects of human life, um, the easiest and often the most effective is the physical. So what I want to talk about a little is how these three common emotional problems, depression, anxiety, and anger, have a kind of a root in our physiology. Now, this is not to say that, that uh, drugs for these disorders and psychotherapy aren't valuable. They, of course, are. But if you add the physical component, uh, psychotherapy can go much quicker and uh, the, the need for drugs can be much less or reduced more quickly. Nothing wrong with drugs when we need them, but of course there is no drug without a side effect. And so we wanna use those almost as a last resort.
0: Indeed, yes. Um, and I, I love how Ayurvedic practices can sort of complement psychotherapy and medications. And in uh, in the mental health world, we like to call it the least restrictive environment. And so for most people, the least restrictive clinical environment would be outpatient counseling, which would be once a week, either in an office or over the internet uh, appointments. And we could go up from there. I'm actually developing a handout and a blog about levels of care, both clinical and non-clinical because non-clinical restrictive, non-restrictive levels of care could be exercise, um, Socialization with the uh, healthy people, uh, music practice, different things we can do for our mental health that aren't necessarily clinical. But when we go clinical side, outpatient therapy, which is what I do and our clinic does, is the least restrictive environment. Uh, there's some debate about what is next, but usually intensive outpatient three times a week, and oftentimes it depends which literature you're reading. If you're reading the American Psychiatric uh, Association, they would say the least restrictive environment is one medication. Um, We would say that usually it it depends when, when are you needing that medication, how much therapy is not working before that is needing to be happening. And that's sort of up for debate, but I would say it depends on the person. Some people can do just fine with outpatient therapy and never need a medication. Some people can go to intensive outpatient, even if outpatient therapy is not working and they don't need a chemical, uh, to change their mind, uh, balance. But oftentimes when we see somebody in the hospital or partial hospitalization, which is a, a day program, um, they're needing not only a lot of, a lot of psychotherapy, but they're going to need something temporarily to stop their mind from going in the way it's been going, um, And then the debate, of course, after that is, how long do they stay on a medication, right? And how many interventions do they need post-treatment? So there's a lot more to be said on that. Again, it's about a 10-page article that I'm writing about these levels of care, both clinical and non-clinical, but I love how Ayurvedic kind of could weave its way into both. So could you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Indeed, let's begin uh, with uh, the emotion of depression, for example. Depression is a condition that's often characterized by low and sluggish energy. There is a tendency to seek comfort in sweet comfort foods, which tend to increase weight, which cause even more lethargy, and re- can result in even deeper depression. Now, depression is generally thought of as a heavy emotion, and heaviness is an attribute of the biological force which connects to the two elements, water and earth. Depression causes a feeling of both mental and physical heaviness, um, inertia, and a general lack of vitality. Now, depression often responds well to changes in diet, uh, replacing heavy, sweet, uh, and oily foods, which all create heaviness in the body slowness in the body and can contribute to a psychological condition of heaviness, lethargy, and depression. So to exchange these heavy uh, foods for lighter foods can often raise the spirits. In terms of meat, for example, beef causes more heaviness than chicken. Why would that be so? Think about the source of beef A big, heavy cow, they tend not to move fast, Um, and the meat that comes from these animals tends to contain within itself some of these characteristics of of the animal that they come from. A chicken, by contrast, is much lighter. In fact, I suppose, under certain circumstances, chicken can join other fowl and actually flying. And they move more quickly. So the food from that animal produces less heaviness than does beef. And this extra lightness can oppose the heavy condition that we associate with with depression. Now, in terms of activity, depression causes many people to just want to go to bed and pull the covers over their heads. They want to check out of the world and... You know, just stay at home, stay withdrawn, inactive, maybe watching TV or taking naps. And these activities, or rather lack of activities, actually contribute to depression. I've had many cases where a person comes for depression. I find out that their exercise activity is zero, and I put them to walking early in the morning And all by itself this can contribute substantially to um, less of the inertia and heaviness and depression that we associate with an excess of this biological force, which in Sanskrit language is called kapha. Kapha combines the elements of water and earth, which compared to the other elements are relatively heavy. And when there is an excess, of these heavier elements, um, then a person can have weight gain. There can be depression emotionally and a feeling of lack of vitality. And as often happens with these cases, the worse it gets, the worse it gets. So lighter food to lighten the mood of depression, And more activity to get the body moving and stimulating and stirring things up can, together with psychotherapy and in perhaps more extreme cases, um, medicine, to bring a person more quickly out of of these depressed moods. Uh, When I was working in Brazil, I was associated with a number of psychotherapists who would refer their patients to me for an assessment of their psychobiological condition in terms of these three biological forces. And if it was a, qu- a question of, of depression, uh, I would make recommendations to the therapist to advise the client to change mm-hmm. diet. I supply those um, on request um, through my website and so on. A, a diet that helps to lighten. Uh, the mood of depression and lifestyle suggestions which uh, tend to chase the blues away.
0: There's this difficulty in the sciences where there's been a divide into silos in the United States, especially and probably elsewhere, where <clears throat> we a lot of branches of medicine and science aren't speaking to each other. Mm. And so we have uh, people who are like you you were just describing an example of somebody who's depressed and lethargic and then they're eating to sort of numb the pain or feel better Mm -hmm. or whatever and this is making them more lethargic they might be gaining weight they're heavy these characteristics of darkness and depression um and now sometimes when people are depressed they also don't eat right but that's i think not as common as the is the eating um but we're talking about that and if they went to the if they went to a regular doctor they may not mention the weight they might just give them the medication um which is sort of we're forgetting two things here we're forgetting first of all what are they putting in their body and and and, you know things you're putting in your body that's going inside you okay that's a weird thing i feel like people don't comprehend you're putting something inside you so what's in it what is in that can your body break it down is it is it uh is it what your body needs? Is it, is it something uh, that's nourishing or is it something inflammatory? And then we have also the other factor, which is what kind of physical activity are you getting? And if you're in a cycle of depression, it's really hard to get yourself moving to get to get that movement going again, right? But that's one of the goals. Um, this, is, this is
1: where another limb of Ayurveda can be helpful because in addition to suggestions for diet and a lifestyle, um, there are and the, the Ayurvedic pharmacology, which is herbally based, can suggest uh, herbs which help to stimulate uh, the person in a healthy way and by all, all by themselves create a greater sense of energy. They warm the body because depression is a pretty cold uh, emotion. And uh, some of these herbs that are effective in in raising one's spirits are not exotic. They're not necessarily um, unpronounceable Indian herbs, which are, of course, very effective, but things which can be found in in a person's kitchen. Garlic, for example, is a good um, antidepressant. And turmeric as well. And rosemary, um, sage, barberry. These are stimulant herbs, warming or in some cases, heating herbs, and these by their nature oppose the cold, heavy, and uh, inert or stuck uh, physiology which corresponds to the emotional state of depression. So diet, lifestyle, and and uh, herbal formulas are the three tools most often used in this country um, for Ayurvedic practice. And when a person is doing these things, then psychotherapy can proceed ever so much more quickly, and uh, the results are, well, less expensive, for one thing.
0: Well, and I, you know, what's interesting to me about Ayurveda and Ayurvedic practices is it seems like there's these sort of principles of physics and metaphor and observation that are coming into the practice. So it reminds me of the alchemical writings of James Hillman, who took alchemy to be a metaphor and went through all the different colors and different shapes and types of solids that the alchemists were trying to make back in the medieval times and made a psychological comparison to each color and each type of um, mood that a person could be in. And he called that, uh, there was actually an audio recording called uh, The Alchemy of Psychology by James Hillman. And there's also Alchemical Psychology. And this is all based on Jung's uh, enjoyment of the metaphors uh, that the alchemist gave us. So when I hear you say depression and heavy, it just makes sense. Depression feels heavy, right? And then I'm going to eat beef, which is a heavy animal versus chicken. It's a lighter animal. And of course... I don't know what the fat content is with chicken versus beef, but I often hear people trying to go on a diet. will eat chicken, right? They'll eat chicken and fish, lighter animals. And so there's something there about we're trying to, you're trying to bring them into balance by balancing the heaviness with some lightness. And then you said these herbs and these things that can be found in the household are possibly, you know, invigorating or enlivening. Um, And so you said er, what were the three things herbs and what were the other two uh diet and lifestyle diet and lifestyle right so we're talking about this is very symbiotic with psychotherapy because if you're doing herbs taking some herbs you're changing your lifestyle just slightly and you're changing your diet you're going to see some changes because mind and body are connected right away even
1: indeed well this of course Um, This is why Ayurveda can be such an effective handmaiden, as it were, or complement to psychotherapy and indeed to modern medicine as well. Because when a person has um, physical heaviness, it's really hard to completely lighten their load simply by talk therapy or indeed any of the other psychotherapeutic techniques. Um, The needs of the body must be respected together with the needs of the mind. Uh, they go hand in hand. And from the Ayurvedic point of view, if depression is caused by uh, an inappropriate diet or lifestyle for that individual, the first order of business is not to move quickly to treatment, but to stop the cause of the problem. In other words, if a person is, is uh, you know sitting in front of the TV all day, eating ice cream, Coca-Cola, and so on, um, it's going to be very hard for them to get out of a state of of depression, so if they if they if one removes these causes of heaviness, weight gain, lethargy, fatigue, it just clears the deck so that the psychotherapy uh, can proceed with less encumbrance.
0: and that is very handy to us, uh, psychotherapists, if we could actually get a holistic whole body program going on in addition to the psychotherapy it'll move a lot faster Indeed, because often it'll take us a long time to get somebody to even consider any changes to their diet or lifestyle let alone taking anything medicinal um because the drugs are the quickest fix but i'm curious what about anxiety and anger could you tell us a little bit about maybe some examples of of that
1: Indeed. Well, anxiety is probably the most common complaint in society today, fueled in part, of course, by the COVID virus. You know, people are a little on edge um, because it's a, you know, a potentially life-threatening situation. But even apart from COVID, we live in a fast-paced world, and it's the speed of modern life as much as anything which provokes anxiety in people. The nervous system is governed by one of these three biological forces uh, called vata, uh, which uh, which is a Sanskrit word that means movement or what moves. And when people move too fast or have too many balls juggling at the same time in the air, it tends to accelerate the velocity in the nervous system and a faster than normal nervous system is going to, in most cases, produce anxiety, just a feeling of of unsteadiness. Now, the elements that associate with anxiety are the elements of space and air, which are invisible. So this uh, force of air is is subtle and abstract. But here's a challenge. This is really going to put the cat among the pigeons. I would ask your listeners to consider that when they feel most anxious, see if they don't also notice having intestinal gas, too much air in their intestines. Now, it's hard to make a a simple connection between gas and anxiety or nervousness. But both are fueled by an excess of air, which is um, an aspect of movement. Air is never still. It's always moving to one place or the other. And in this sense, it's quite the opposite of kapha, which tends to be at least slow and sometimes actually inert. So when a person suffering from anxiety, it's almost always the case that they are moving too fast. And so a simple um, beginning to a fix is to encourage them to slow down. Do less. Take more time with each task. Try and avoid multitasking and just focus on one thing at a time. Now, diet plays a role in this as well. If a person takes food which is intrinsically light salads, for example, or uncooked food, raw food, or the famous gas makers, beans, cabbage, mm, all of the cruciform vegetables, broccoli, Brussels sprouts, um, and so on. These things produce gas, which is light, and this somehow aggravates the nervous system into being hyperactive. Often people who have anxiety also have difficulty getting to sleep because when they lie down hoping for sleep, their brains are moving so fast with so much activity and so many problems and things to worry about that uh, insomnia is a, is a frequent association. So when a person is experiencing anxiety, which is the, uh, I think of the anxiety as baby fear because if anxiety increases significantly, Fear is what will be experienced. So really anxiety is considered to be on the fear spectrum. And strange as it may seem, eating root vegetables well cooked rather than the lighter parts of the plant in terms of vegetables um, can have a um, can cause an increase of a, of a sense of weight, which gives groundedness, a sense of connection to the earth, and this is um, one physical solution to the problem of hyperactivity in the mind. So there's a, a diet for calming vata, which has the effect in almost every case of lowering anxiety, and, and uh, on the positive side, we can say that it increases courage, If courage and fear are opposite to one another, then reducing fear means that courage is enhanced. So diet is an important uh, tool for um, uh, calming the excesses of anxiety. And there are, of course, a number of herbs as well that uh, further calm and slow and ground a person. Ashwagandha, although it's primarily an Indian herb, has come to be pretty well known uh, in this country. And a lot of people take ashwagandha as a single herb. Ayurveda doesn't usually recommend single herb therapy. They're often overused and misused. Much better to take a formula of herbs. So, for example, in the case of a vata calming formula, one might well take uh, ashwagandha and basil and um, garlic is also good because it's warming. Uh, ginger is a, a, a good um, herb for, for vata. And pretty much anything that calms and slows the nervous system, including valerian um, and even skullcap. So when a person has anxiety, then a diet which avoids the gas-making foods, a lifestyle which causes more slowness and more weight, and an herbal formula that has um, calmative herbs primarily, will go quite far and quickly to, to calm vata so that and then the psychotherapist can deal with whatever are the underlying psychological causes of fear and anxiety and not be troubled with the simple mechanical physiological causes of it.
0: Can I tell you about something that's gaining popularity in some of the hip neighborhoods in the U.S.? Mm-hmm. They are called kava bars. Mm-hmm. So kava kava, or I think it's called Piper Methysticum. I don't know how to say it. Mm -hmm. is that is an herb or a plant uh, from the Pacific Islands, um, mostly. And in there, they could consume it for its sedating effects. And here in the U.S., I guess if you go to a health food store, you can find a dropper full of kava kava. Now, these kava bars are purporting to have imported this stuff in some sort of different way, and they have a big spiel. I went to one of them once. And they give you, they sell you a large, large cup of cava, cava, uh, cava. And, and they flavor it with maybe pineapple or something, right? So it tastes sort of like a, a cocktail, but it's cava. It's not alcohol. And, uh, cocktail, you know, with like, they have different flavors, pineapple with like some soda water and who knows what else. And it, it, it's the root of the drink. or oh, sorry, it's the root of the plant that produces the drink. So interestingly enough, like you said, it's the root that might bring you back to the ground. And the Kava root. The
1: the problem with these mono mono therapies, uh, and and with respect and affection, we Americans tend to love these single quick solutions to problems. But it's very easy to abuse and overuse these simple things. Kava Kava in excess, and it doesn't take much, uh, not only produces calmness, but it actually produces dullness. Mm -hmm. Um, and can go too far the other side. This is why uh, on the principle of what is known as synergy or synergy, two or more herbs, each of which have the same effect, but from a different point of view are considered more than twice as effective as either one in, in twice the dose. So that's why a good Ayurvedic formula will usually consist of six, seven, or eight different herbs which balance each other, which utilizes, utilize the, the best of each of them in a way which calms but doesn't um, dull the mind, slows the nervous system without making a person lethargic, and, and enables the, the creativity that's associated with vata and a lively nervous system to come to the fore and displace useless anxiety and fear.
0: Well, I, I like the I like the uh, Ayurvedic approach. sounds much more balanced. I just thought it was kind of hilarious that they're now having kava bars because that's a shift away from alcohol. Because people are finding that alcohol only has them feeling good for a little while, and then there's a lot of negative effects. Um, but interestingly enough, there was a small review. Uh, it was done by some. Nonprofit in England that said that uh, kava kava was more effective than placebo at treating short term anxiety, but there's a lot of health risks with consuming it long term because of uh, potential liver issues. Um, so, of course, just like alcohol, except actually possibly faster <laughs> because it goes right through the liver pathway. Um, so, I, I, I so far I, I keep hearing Ayurveda trying to get us back to the balance, but I, I guess I want to know a little bit about anger. I want to know a little bit about anger. You could tell us about that popular topic.
1: Indeed. Anger though is not normally listed as one of the three or even four most troublesome emotions. And yet it can be more devastating than the other two because anger doesn't just influence the person who feels angry. It influences often people that are in their families or in their workplaces or in their environment generally. (laughs) It can give rise to some extremely unsocial behavior. Now, just as kapha and Vata we have seen are cold emotions, think for example, about anxiety and fear, don't you feel that these are, in fact cold? emotions
0: oh yeah well i think a lot of times I've people have reported me when they're very very anxious their stomach hurts and then their body their their limbs get cold yes uh-huh right right and with depression i've heard people tell me that they just lay in bed and they have to cover themselves with blankets because they're freezing right because they're not having any body activity
1: both of those emotions based on the ayurvedic perception of the three doshas vata pitta and kapha Anxiety and, and, uh, and depression are both cold emotions. Anger, on the other hand, quite obviously, is a hot emotion. So when a person is suffering from anger, it's almost always the case that for one reason or the other, they're taking too much heat into their bodies or subjecting their bodies to too much heat. For example, I think everyone knows that if you eat very hot, spicy food, this can not only increase body temperature but it can also increase the emotional temperature and result in irritation, anger, and in extreme cases, even rage. Um, Less obvious is the simple radish. You know, they're piquant or spicy. One doesn't think of them as potentially harmful food, but if if you eat enough radishes, you'll get hot, and anger may be a consequence. Less obvious, is the simple banana. You ask most people, what is the taste of a banana? And they'll tell you it's sweet. Of course it is. But there's a secondary taste to bananas, which is sour.
0: Hmm.
1: And that sour taste in a banana, in some cultures is called the acid taste, Mm -hmm. increases heat as does any acid in the body. And that too can give rise to hot emotions and indeed to physical inflammatory problems. I've known little children particularly uh, who, um, because they eat too many bananas, have very bad temperaments and anger and lashing out bad behavior with their parents and so on. Reduce or take away the bananas and cool and calm is restored. So again, as with these other uh, emotional uh, disorders, there are there's a special diet for people who have too much heat physically and mentally or emotionally. And for the most part, it consists of removing the foods which cause this excess of heat. Coffee, for example, has a pH of around two. It's very acidic and coffee can promote anger. And everyone, everyone that I know, particularly here in the state of Washington, which is home of Starbucks and it's the coffee capital of the world, or it likes to think of itself that way. And, um, It's uh, you know people are you know pretty hot anyway. um, Alcohol. Native Americans showed great wisdom in calling alcohol firewater. Any number of bad westerns I saw growing up, firewater make white man crazy. (laughs) (laughs) It's true, you know. Alcohol, like coffee, has a pH of about two. It's very acidic it's not the alcohol as such, it's not the part that makes you inebriated, it's the acid in alcohol that causes excess of heat in the body, and of course, as we know, a lot of serious mischief, even serious crimes, can be caused when a person under the influence of alcohol allows anger to replace reason, and um, violence can be a consequence. So, to calm problems of anger, it's good to avoid the foods, not all of which are obvious, which, which cause heat in the body. And in, in fact, to take foods which have a cooling effect. You know, Hippocrates, who's the Greek physician considered to be the father of modern medicine, you know, more than 2,000 years ago, advised, let food be your medicine and let medicine be your food. The Greeks in those days were influenced by Ayurveda, which was much earlier and was imported to Greece from India, where it originated. And they understood that food. Remember well, you won't remember, and probably most of your listeners won't remember the '60s when <laughs> uh, people were doing peace and love and um, reciting the the, uh, the sutra that you are what you eat. Mm a lot of truth in that yeah a lot of truth in that now in in terms of lifestyle pretty obviously when a person has too much heat or when anger is an emotional problem then it's good to remove the external causes of heat from their lives as well hot showers and too long in a hot tub Um, being out of doors particularly in hot weather or hot climates in the in the midday sun it's best to take one's outdoor activities before 10 and after two, and that helps to keep things much cooler. Well, I was gonna say the eyes can be um, a pathway, not just of light, but of the heat which is subtly associated with light so that people often just by staring all day long with a computer screen, and very few of us don't do that these days, uh, can increase pitta, the Sanskrit name for this hot force, and uh, therefore make people, if not angry, at least irritable. Irritation is like baby anger. If you pump up irritation, you get anger. If you pump up anger, you'll get rage or whatever. So um, hot showers, staring too long on a computer screen, um, midday sun uh, can all increase heat in the body and cause not just anger emotionally, mentally, but uh, all sorts of physiological problems having to do with uh, inflammatory situations, problems of the skin, all the different ITIS disorders, uh, bronchitis and uh, cystitis and conjunctivitis, all of that means too much heat somewhere in the body. And when we talk about anger, What we are talking about effectively is too much heat in the nervous system, in the mind, in the emotions, and too often in the behavior. So just as with vata and kapha, there are a number of herbs which help to cool the body more quickly than ordinary food.
0: this would be for pitta.
1: This would be for pitta, right. And uh, some of these are also common. Chamomile and mint and hibiscus and even jasmine can be cooling to the body. Sarsaparilla um, and others that are could be considered kitchen herbs. And then, there, are, of course, as with the other formulas, um, more exotic-sounding herbs and, in many cases, more powerful herbs that are legally imported under FDA supervision from India um, and are available through one source or the other. So, um, diet, avoid the hot spicy foods and add instead the cooling foods. Uh, Lifestyle, reduce heat um, as much as possible from the environment and herbally, quite a number of herbs which are considered refrigerant, which is the technical term for herbs which have a cooling effect on the body. So, you know, a lot of times people are mandated by a judge to do anger management courses because their their anger has become so toxic, so pathological that they are themselves at risk and so too are their families. Um, a judge might well consider (laughs) a a pitch pacifying program that would probably in many cases effectively reduce these people who suffer from uh, anger and worse, whose families suffer as a result of their anger.
0: So it's interesting uh, in pop culture when cartoon characters would get very angry, you'd see fire coming out of their heads, (laughs) right? And steam. And then uh, also there's many studies and I'll just cite a couple right here. Um, this is from the association for psychological science, uh, that for decades, multiple studies have shown this researchers have observed a correlation between hot weather and increases in violent and aggressive behaviors. And in fact, research done in the 1980s, uh, between April and August in Phoenix, Arizona, uh, indicated, uh, and this is in many cases, but, uh, people that uh, (laughs) that they did this experiment at stoplights where they were like doing something slowly or trying to aggravate people and honking horn and middle fingers increased on the hotter days. And Mm -hmm. even more so in the eighties, of course, some of these cars didn't have air conditioners. Mm -hmm. So people that had their windows already rolled down were even more upset and angry. Um, Then there was another person from uh, the same Place That was from Iowa State University that did many studies on a uh, heat hypothesis. And one was published in Current Directions in Psychological Science. He observed that this is uh, Craig Anderson's study. Excuse me, I should say that beforehand. He observed that there are about 2.6% more murders and assaults in the United States during the summer than other seasons of the year. Hot summers produce a bigger increase in violence than cooler summers, and violence rates are higher in hotter years than in cooler years, even when various statistical controls are used. Anderson argues that hot temperatures make us uncomfortable, which leads to crankiness, and cranky people are irritable and prone to lashing out. That's his theory, right? But uh, I, I just think it's funny how that can all go back to um, Ayurveda, Ayurvedic uh, philosophy. And, and then there was another science uh, article in the Psychological Science magazine about heat aggression and retaliation by analyzing violence during baseball games. And this guy from Duke, Dr. Robert Richard Larrick, analyzed data from 57,000-something Major League Baseball games. Okay. And um, apparently they were finding that in the games where it was hotter— The probability of a pitcher hitting a batter increases sharply, even uh, in higher temperatures, when more of the pitcher's teammates have been hit by the opposing team earlier in the game. Especially on hotter days, players were more likely to retaliate against each other in violence. Although the direct relationship between temperature and aggression observed in the study was moderate, the evidence suggests that heat appears to magnify the response to provocation. Heat predicts retribution. And that's in baseball, which is largely a nonviolent sport compared to hockey, right, or football. Um, So anyway, I just think that's interesting how science is just showing the same things that Ayurvedic medicine has been saying for thousands of years. (laughs) It's an
1: old, old story. You know, there's really not that much new under the sun. And while many people think that that because Ayurveda is very old, it's considered to be around 5,000 years old, that it must somehow be primitive. This is not the case. It's very natural. It's uh, experience-based. It's um, eminently scientific. But it's distinguished from the modern approach to health in being very simple And natural, Um, remove the cause of disorders, whether it's dietary or lifestyle or um, some other cause, and you can change the effect. Sometimes even without the need for medicine or surgery or other more drastic forms of intervention.
0: Yes, I like it. Um, are you open to some more questions about how Ayurvedic principles can help with a few other conditions? Sure. Fire away. Well, uh, there's a couple of things that are plaguing the the, uh, United States that I see a lot, which is the craving for sugar Mm -hmm. and also cravings for alcohol. Well, let's start with sugar because, uh, one of the things I've noticed is that a lot of sugar is marketed towards children. And it's unbelievable that if, you, and I get it, that you know, convenience stores are convenient, right? But in these neighborhoods where people are going to the convenience store, they have no fresh fruits or vegetables. They have bread and milk and a ton, and I mean a ton, you know, metaphorically, of candy. And it seems to me that companies are targeting children with, with sugar because it's sort of the drug of choice of children, and it also gets them hooked, you know, for life, because it's uh, neurons uh, uh, wire together, fire together. So if your body's used to a certain amount of sugar, you may not even realize how much uh, sugar you are uh, consuming at an at a older age when it starts, when you start really feeling the <laughs> negative effects Um so the cravings for sugar are big, I think because they, there's also if you eat any sort of processed foods, it's added to most of them. Um, a lot of them, right Even potato chips sometimes have sugar in them, added little a little just a little bit here and there. And um, I I'll just go out on the limb here. I've also called sugar the crack cocaine of food because oh. it's not what it was when, when it was in the field as a cane cane sugar, right, if you get it in its original form before distilling it down to a white powder, um, you, it doesn't taste that sweet, right? Just, and and, um, in fact, according to things I've read about history, people used to really consume a lot more honey and honey was in, you know, put in uh, different alcohols, they called it mead, right? And you put honey on bread and you put honey on fruit and things and it would make things sweeter. Well, then somehow, in some way, we invented, we we got not only cane sugar, but we got granulated white bleach sugar, not even the the brown sugar, right? Um, And it's led to an epidemic of diabetes of type 2. It looks like this. Approximately 1 in 10 Americans uh, have type 2 diabetes. Um,
1: That's going to increase to perhaps three in 10 within the next 20 or 30 years, at least if the president says doctor, more than
0: 34 American million have 34 million Americans have diabetes, about one in 10 approximately 90, 90, 90 to 95% of them have type two. So mostly it's type two. Yeah. So you
1: know, Paul. Um, there are sweet, sweet taste is the first taste. This is, this is the taste of mother's milk and therefore all the associations of that first taste, uh, form a kind of psychological bond as well as a physical one. It represents comfort, security, nourishment, even survival itself. But sweet taste is just one of six tastes. And to be healthy, we need to have all six tastes in our diet. So if there's a preponderance of sweet or salty or sour or pungent, uh, we will be out of balance Anyway, sweet has all these psychological associations from infancy and, and the security of mother's milk, or indeed, even formula milk. So we tend to prefer sweet taste, um, particularly when we're looking for comfort. Um, but you quite correctly pointed out that the problem is not with sweet taste, because you know milk is not Devastating, or um, fruit, you know, which has predominant most of it has sweet taste, and there are many things. Wheat even has sweet taste, uh, rice. Um, so we get plenty of opportunities to satisfy our need for the sweet taste. The problem comes when that, when uh, as you said, when sugar has been refined to the point that it requires no digestion whatsoever that we drink it in the form of a soda pop or take it in the form of cakes or candy, the sugar goes straight into the bloodstream. No digestion necessary. And this causes the pancreas, which needs to deal with that substance, to overreact. And that overreaction can be a habit if we, if we take um, concentrated sweet in the form of sugar or other, even white bread is a kind of concentrated you know, sweet carbohydrate, then it establishes a pattern of hypo and hyperglycemia, or you know too little and too much um, sugar in the bloodstream, and this uh, becomes an addiction. When we, uh, when the pancreas has become so tired of having to overreact to this concentrated sweet suddenly rushing into the bloodstream, it begins to act up, and that's when we can expect um, type 2 diabetes to manifest. But even before that time, um, too much white sugar causes energy fluctuations, and this can have uh, an influence on emotional moods as much as anything else that we experience. So there are Indian herbs, which tend to strengthen the, the pancreas so that it doesn't overreact so to uh, concentrated sweets. And this can help to reduce the dependence or the addiction on these things. I have given a formula that I make I call sugar balance to scores, probably hundreds of people. And even within a month or so, taking this formula, uh people find themselves growing indifferent. Um, they can take it or leave it, and it's not an addiction anymore, it doesn't contribute um to weight gain, and it's just um a way of encouraging the body to remain in balance without overreacting um, to foods which are devitalized and are bad for us. So uh, the scourge of of diabetes and uh, the projections that it's going to be worse than COVID as a pandemic in time to come can easily, uh, through particularly through herbal uh, therapy, can be reduced and with a significant improvement in individual health and and almost an incalculable savings in the cost of um, our national health care.
0: Wonderful. So with Ayurvedic herbs, it would have to be possibly a formula that could assist with the decrease of sugar.
1: That's right. It's... um, one of the principal herbs used in this is uh, one which is called, in some chardonica, which um, in some translations mean slayer of sugar. And it doesn't harm your taste for sugar. What it does is it improves the functioning of the pancreas so that the, the production and distribution of insulin, which is the function of the, of the pancreas, is regularized and normalized so that a person doesn't get into the hypoglycemia or low sugar, which drives them to the cookie jar or, in some cases, to the wine bottle or cocktail lounge. Because the molecules of alcohol and sugar are very, very close together. And from experience, we find that when a person is able to reduce their desire for alcohol... They also reduce their desire for sugar and vice versa.
0: Well, it's funny you say that because I don't imbibe alcohol that often. But when I do, I try to enjoy it with friends maybe on the weekend. And I notice the sec- the day after having, if I have two drinks, maybe three at the most, in an evening, I will be craving the worst food ever the next day, usually sugar terrible food and this is not from a hangover this is just i just notice it and then and when then i don't drink all week and i'm eating healthier and healthier and the more i exercise the more i'm craving maybe like fruit or you know uh, proteins uh you know things like that and and i was wondering does alcohol influence our sugar craving
1: well because alcohol is itself like sugar such a an easy to enter the bloodstream that's why when you you know take a drink or two right away you have the effect of it there's hardly any delay because it doesn't need to be digested it's just straight into the bloodstream and so that um increase of what effectively has the same influence on us as sugar creates um uh a reaction from the pancreas which causes that excess of sugar to be completely consumed for our safety. Then we find ourselves with insufficient sugar for the energy we'd need. So mm. it's natural that the next day you, you want to replace the sugar that your pancreas has, has tried to neutralize in the form of alcohol by going for sweets. It's commonly understood when, when a person... Uh, Quits drinking and starts, for example, with a program of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, in most cases, they're right onto sugar as a substitute for the alcohol. Now, of course, it's much less harmful, is sugar, but ultimately, that too is a kind of unhelpful addiction in terms of health generally. And better that we enjoy moderate amounts of sweet taste, fruit is a perfect, can perfectly satisfy the desire for sweet. Fruit juice, that's another story. There's no juice bars in nature. (laughs) Well, A person wouldn't normally, you know, in a state of nature, if there ever was such a thing, wouldn't normally go into an orange orchard and eat six or seven oranges. I mean, it's just not what you would do. One or two was more than enough to satisfy but you can easily drink the juice of six or seven oranges, and that too, even though it's not refined white sugar, is a form of sugar which taxes the pancreas, causes a, an insulin overreaction, and can become addictive. So a lot of people who drink fruit juice in large amounts regularly, thinking that they're doing something for their health, are in fact putting themselves at risk for diabetes, just like people who eat too much sugar.
0: And is that because it's it's uh, the fruit juice has been separated from the pulp and the other elements of a, f- a piece of fruit?
1: In effect, yes, because there's no or very little digestion necessary for fruit juice. Whereas if you eat a whole orange or a whole apple, then you have to do some work to break it down to digest it. It enters the the sugar enters the bloodstream more slowly, and doesn't that caused this excitement and reaction of the pancreas.
0: Sounds like um, <laughs> there's certain things that we're doing to speed up our lifestyle that are actually possibly hurting us in the long run. So I'm curious about the last one here, which was uh, craving for alcohol. Um, mm-hmm. And this is a major issue, in fact, in the pandemic, during the pandemic, which is still going on, but in the main portions of it, when there was extensive lockdowns, alcohol sales went climbing higher than ever for home use. Um, could you talk a little bit about how Ayurvedic medicine could help with, or the practice, practice of could help with uh, alcohol cravings?
1: Alcohol is tricky. There are some experts that insist that zero alcohol is um, what we should aim for. Others insist that we um, can get resveratrol or, or other beneficial substances by a glass for women and not more than two glasses for men of red wine. The jury's out on whether small amounts of alcohol uh, are harmful or helpful. But there's no question about large amounts of alcohol being harmful. They uh, they destroy the liver and uh, usually our social life as well. So when alcohol becomes a problem, when it becomes an addiction rather than a pleasure, then Higher has a solution in the form of various herbal formulas, which strengthen the pancreas and reduce that craving for the sudden um, fix that we get when we take either alcohol or any concentrated sweet. Um, it's it's there. There's a It's long been observed that that addiction produces allergy. In other words, whatever we're addicted to, we're also allergic to. You can drink a glass or two of wine. You're not addicted to alcohol. Um, But if if your craving uh, were greater, then you would drink too much alcohol, and this would effectively be for you a poison. Well, there seems a clear association between whatever we're addicted to and what we are allergic to. And it's a paradox that we sometimes crave exactly what we're allergic to. That's why a person who's addicted to cigarettes, um, cigarettes are a poison for that person, but they're addicted to it all the same. Alcohol is the same. If you're addicted to alcohol, it's probably, for you, a poison. Addicted to sugar, sugar is certainly harmful. So we have to be, we have to notice that the things that we crave most might be exactly those things which are not good for us.
0: Well, I've certainly noticed that when I found out I was allergic to wheat because I loved really good fresh baked bread, oh. but I also loved the supermarket bread if it was sourdough or something like that and uh it was such it was a tragic day when i saw that on my uh it's not anaphylactic but it was a high sensitivity and i notice it immediately upon ingesting wheat
1: mm-hmm.
0: East american wheat yeah. <laughs> i have all these symptoms within about 30 minutes so
1: the addiction um, syndrome yeah I,
0: I, and of course i would pair that with cheese and i'm also allergic to milk Mm -hmm. that's that's been that's been proven so (laughs) anyway based on that so i i love how ayurvedic is so simple but it's also difficult because in a in the modern lifestyle a lot of people aren't taking time to slow down and consider what are they putting in their body um how are they treating their body so the lifestyle diet exercise and what are we surrounding ourselves with this is becoming a it, it's not a lost art I don't want to say that, but what I mean is it's not common, but it does seem to be something that people strive for so even in um I would say popular culture now you have people talking about how you know meditation has helped them and walking and going for the simple things going for the simple things you'll hear this in books you'll hear this in pop culture uh, In a way, trying to return back to some of the things that Ayurvedic practices have talked about, but it's almost as if it's, we all know we need to do it, and that's why people talk about it, but are we actually getting to it? Are we actually holding ourselves accountable to uh, the behaviors of slowing down and contemplation and um, watching... Not only watching what we eat, which is you know Weight Watchers and that sort of thing, just caloric counting, but are we are we figuring out what sources we're eating, what from, and what types, and are we remembering about variety? It, you know, all these things. That these these are things people skip over uh, in modern society because we're all going so quickly now. COVID, of course, um, quarantines slowed that down, and so we saw a lot of people returning to cooking. Um, we saw a lot of people doing online yoga and meditation, and these sort of things. Um, but obviously, we saw the, the the increase of alcohol intake. I think I read somewhere it was up thirty uh, percent based on sales. Uh, increased marijuana intake, um, all sorts of other negative effects. But I guess it just comes down to the person. And is there anything else you'd like to tell us about these approaches of that Ayurvedic practices? Uh, can help with, or anything else we left out so far?
1: I think you just raised uh, earlier an important point, and that is that most of us know what we ought to do to be healthier, but the problem is in actually doing it. Willpower enters into it, lifestyle, habit, and all the rest. That's why, while I believe firmly that if a person would carefully follow an Ayurvedic diet, they could have substantially better health and longevity. But let's be honest. What I find is that the herbs or the herbal formulas that I give to people have a much better effect than the diet because they don't have to do anything. You know, a couple of capsules per day that will either cool too much pitta, or warm-up, vata and kapha. um, It's a, a kind of medicinal approach to make improved health easier. And when the herbs start to have their effect, and it's usually pretty quick that they do, then a person naturally finds it easier to avoid the foods that don't do them much good and choose instead the ones that are helpful. So while it shouldn't be the case, it is my clinical experience that the herbs are more useful for most people than the diet. But, of course, together, uh, diet and the herbs are the best way to go. Now, you asked if there's anything more that I want to add about Ayurveda. Let's put the cat among the pigeons here and risk losing our uh, what, what gains we may have made in our one of the important causal factors in life and health is simply time. Nothing stays the same. Time is like a river, and we're all in that river, and there are times when the river flows rough and bumpy, and times when it's broad and smooth. The most useful tool for understanding the effect of time on ourselves is the ancient art of astrology. I know a lot of people think that astrology is woo-woo and silliness. They think that the newspaper account of their sun sign, Virgo, Aquarius, whatever it might be, is a little too broad to be of any use at all. And that would be true. But the sun is not the only significator in our in our astrological life. When we're born, in addition to the sun being in Libra or Gemini or wherever it might be, the other planets in our solar system are also seen against the background of the various signs of the zodiac. And to an experienced astrologer, these can be useful clues as to the health um, of an individual. For example, Mars is a planet which is often associated with uh, aggression and and uh, anger can be um, because it's, uh, remember that uh, Mars was the god of war. So the position of Mars in the astrological map or the relationship between Mars and other planets in the chart can help the astrologer or the Ayurvedic practitioner who uses astrology to see... Um, how best to defend against a difficult Mars, or perhaps, perhaps it's a transitory problem, just uh, Mars, you know, going around up there in the sky will pass through critical areas in the chart. And so rather than needing to do any palliative or um, heroic measures for, say, an inflammatory problem, it's just a question of waiting a couple of weeks or a month or so until Mars moves on to cooler parts of the map. So I do sometimes use astrology when I'm dealing with clients, just in case the concern is one that has more to do with time than with something more substantial. That's just a a side note. Probably put off more people than it interests, but the truth is what it is. And astrology has been around for Almost as long as Ayurveda, and for those who are have an open mind, a lot of self-knowledge can come from this this uh, aspect of life.
0: Well, I think uh, <clears throat> a lot of the reasons people might be put off is that they've read the paper accounts of the sun sign of whatever' going on with their astrological things and have heard a bunch of really terrible pseudo astrologers going on about things. And and in fact, I can't really speak at large on the system, but I would say that from a psychology perspective, if something is going to get you to consider different aspects of your personality, different aspects of your life, and even pose questions that may not be absolute truths, but may be tendencies, right, or patterns, um, is that going to harm an individual by examining that absolutely not in fact is going to enliven them right and uh, you know different cultures have different ways of going about that and so astrology is just one of those ways i think it's the way that people use it that gets misconstrued and sort of uh berated around uh, people try to use it as absolute truth or or religion or um, you know, I'm not going to leave my house unless I have a good reading today on my moon sign or, you know, sort of exaggerative American sure. ways of doing things. Sort that's, of give it a bad rap,
1: right? That's, yeah, that's uh, to completely
0: misunderstand. So. Exactly. So it, what you're talking about is, is, is a lot different. And so I think our listeners can understand that it's a tool for awareness, self, um, self-knowledge, and also that there are some very interesting patterns and archetypes that run through when you actually um, work with a person who's experienced and, it, and knows what they're doing and isn't just trying to make a sideshow.
1: Right. You referred earlier to, to the psychologist uh, Carl Jung. Uh, Jung himself was a very good astrologer and used astrology in his clinical practice. Um, and again, just as I have done with, with the psychotherapists, Um, to do with emotional problems. I have also used astrology with psychotherapists to help indicate um, areas which can be examined profitably to help improve one's psychological health. For example, um, tell me where Saturn is in a person's chart. I'll tell you what they're afraid of. Tell me where Mars is. I'll tell you what pisses them off. Can you say pisses them off in the... the Oh, yeah. I've
0: heard worse on this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Makes them angry. There we go. Well, politically correct.
1: And, uh, you know, Neptune can indicate uh, the possibility of, you know, delusional states and so on. It's a useful tool. It's not... It's just... uh, It's like a mirror. If you want to know what you look like... It can help to look in the mirror. Is your hair combed? You know, if you're a woman, is your lipstick on straight? All that sort of thing. The mirror doesn't make you look a certain way. It just reflects how you do look. And this has to do with self-knowledge. And the better we know ourselves physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually, the more healthy and the more integrated we are.
0: And I want to just say that um, not totally getting to the conclusion, but uh, I would say astrology could be in the same camp as the Enneagram, which is now becoming much more popular as a test for people's personalities, but originated actually hundreds of years ago. In fact, people are disputing the origins, right? And that has a lot to do with observing people. And then the I Ching, which is uh, a practice, uh, I don't want to totally butcher, where people would uh, throw these different sticks and get a reading um and uh it, it's related to the tao teaching but not the same and you throw the i ching and you toss them and you get a numerical value and you add them up and then that tells you something so all of these things are tools for reflection right and i think they uh, i think in it, they take an open mind and it's the way that you approach them or the way that you use them just like the internet the internet can be used for something great. The internet can be used for terrible activities. And the internet and we could I could be a restaurant and and sell you a good value meal, or I could try to rip you off with the dirtiest meat I can find and the cheapest vegetables and put a bunch of sauce on it and sell you a diet coke and tell you that it's a really good meal and you taste it and it looks right. It's cut up right, but it tastes like trash, right? So it's about h- how we're utilizing it. So that's why I'm glad you brought up astrology because I think it is a very interesting tool. And I think that the science, you know, in the art of Ayurvedic medicine and even the art of psychotherapy, we're always looking for tools for reflection and, and new ways of understanding ourselves. So I appreciate you bringing that up, especially it being one of those can be knee-jerk reactions for certain certain folks because they've got a posture that they're they're in the right crowd here. So um, I think to be a scientist, we have to be to be looking at all things and um, and especially as a practitioner, not throwing anything out, but also you know be careful where your devotions lie. Also, because if if we if you all of a sudden think you've got the absolute answer, you're going to have a client or a patient that comes in who defies the rules. Always,
1: always, yeah.
0: So I really appreciate it, Charles. Now, uh, can people contact you?
1: They can. I have a website. It's um, uh, Charles Goodman Ayurveda. And uh, on the website, I explain how it's possible to arrange a consultation, um, order herbs, um, book an astrology reading, Um, And indeed, I'm happy to send uh, diets and so on to to people if they contact me. I started this website at the beginning of the COVID pandemic, because since we're all pretty much locked into our rooms during this time, I wanted it to be possible for people without having to go uh, to a clinical situation or even to a doctor, if that's not safe and to, you know, to to get better balance and better health um, virtually and by, by the mail. So I have clients all over the world, um, many in Brazil where I lived for a number of years, but um, all around the United States, Canada, some in India, um, Eastern Europe and so on. And I deal with them by Zoom or sometimes just on the telephone, send the herbs and diets and so on that they need. And it's not quite as satisfactory as face-to-face, but it's what we can do now at this time. And so I'm just happy to be out there um, as a potential source of help for anybody who might need it.
0: And that being said... I appreciate your time, Charles, and I look forward to possibly next time we have you on the show.
1: Always nice to be with you, Paul. Thanks a lot.
0: This has been another episode of the Intentional Clinician Podcast with Paul Krause. If you are enjoying this podcast, please share it with people you know. I would surely appreciate it. Until next time on the Intentional Clinician, I'm wishing you all a safe and peaceful week. As promised, I'm about to play you an audio preview of a little bit of my new online course for parents of young adults. Here it is. Once referred to as the failure to launch generation, today's young adults are facing unprecedented challenges, leaving many parents of young adults feeling fearful, confused, and agitated. Today's young adults face an unstable job market, the ever-increasing availability of drugs, alcohol, and sexual hookups, uncertain career prospects, high housing costs, and political and social upheaval. While many parents are anxious to help their young adults move out and begin their adult life, These same parents of young adults often feel frozen in terms of attempting to sort out what type of support is appropriate and how to navigate the emotional highs and lows of their child's experience. They often wonder how to change the communication patterns between them, as well as dealing with their own fears of what could happen. Hi, I'm Paul Kraus, I'm a licensed professional counselor, and I've been working with young adults and their parents since 2007. All of these reasons and more are why I developed an online course for the parents of young adults. Some of the topics covered within this course are what is an emergency and what do you do with it, understanding the stages of change and the rites of passage for young adults, learning about how to change communication patterns, setting up realistic boundaries, ways to promote pro-social activities and reduce antisocial behaviors, and what to do if your young adult is suffering from an addiction. If you'd like to learn more, Just click the link below this video. If you are interested in this course or know someone who might be, the link to my course for parents of young adults, what do we do now, is in the show notes. And the cool thing about it is it has six video modules with me speaking as well as some words on the screen and things like that. It's not a PowerPoint. It's much more engaging than that, but it does have some PDF handouts with it to cover some of the main points, and it provides some resources as well. So I'm hoping people like it. If you are looking for an MDRIA consultant, I am now an MDRIA consultant in training and can provide 15 of the 20 hours needed to become an MDRIA certified therapist. Currently, I actually have two MDRIA groups going online right now and we are doing the consultation groups every Wednesday and we might add another day soon. So for details or how to join, check out counseling supervisorgr.com or healthforlifegr.com or send me an email. If you are in need of counseling, do not hesitate to make an appointment with the local trauma counselor in your area. You can also make an appointment with the excellent clinicians in the Grand Rapids area at Health for Life Grand Rapids and the Trauma Informed Counseling Center of Grand Rapids by visiting www.healthforlifegr.com. That's www. the word health the word for the word life gr.com. The recording you just listened to consists of the personal opinions of Paul Krauss and his guest. And while these are based upon their experience in their respective fields and the literature they have read, these opinions should not be viewed as the definitive truth or opinion on this or any other subject. Listening to this podcast is not a substitute for treatment. If you are in a crisis, please dial 911 right now. Or call the National Suicide Prevention Line at 1-800-273-8255. That's 1-800-273-8255. Are you a young person of color, feeling down, stressed, or overwhelmed? If so, text STEVE, that's S-T-E-V-E, to 741741. That's STEVE to 741741, and a live, trained crisis counselor will respond. Did you know that you can support your local bookshop while shopping from home? That's right. Check out bookshop.org. That's www.bookshop.org. And you can order books from the comfort of your own home. And all of the proceeds go to support local brick-and-mortar bookstores near you. If you are not a member of a counseling association or similar group, I implore you to get involved. The Michigan Mental Health Counselors Association and the Arizona Counselors Association are both examples of groups I'm involved in. And while they're not perfect, they are working to increase the availability of quality mental health services statewide. They're working on increasing education, promoting best practices, and making sure that the public can access licensed professional counselors and other professionals. I think one of the next steps for psychology is trying to integrate what we know about counseling and psychology and the positive things that can come from relationship skill building and communication and trauma work and bringing all that into the field of education and possibly other disciplines so that we can take what we know from psychology and counseling and merge them with other disciplines to create a better community and possibly even a better world. Thank you for listening. This has been Paul Krause of the Intentional Clinician Podcast.